Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today is part two in our series on legitimation crises. Last time we did an episode on crisis. This episode is on legitimacy. And we're going to talk a bit about Bernard Williams and John Rawls this week. Uh, We're not going to do all of Rawls. This is not a Rawls deep dive episode, but we're going to talk about Rawls as an example of a particular way of thinking about legitimacy, a way of thinking about legitimacy that Bernard Williams was very intent on challenging. And we're going to kind of build out from this Williamsian account of legitimacy to give you something that I think will be helpful to you and which draws a lot on my own thesis and work. So to begin with Rawls, Rawls wants states to have what he calls stability for the right reasons. He wants states to be able to maintain their order because they do the right things. And so Rawls grounds his stability for the right reasons on an overlapping consensus among what he calls reasonable people. So this overlapping consensus is uh, an agreement on the constitutional essentials or the basic structure. It's an agreement on how the state will work. It's not an agreement on, say, policy. It's just an agreement on the institutions, right? So Rawls thinks that reasonable people should be able to come together and agree on a set of institutions, and those institutions will broadly be liberal in some sense. And that the only people who won't be able to come together on those institutions are what he calls unreasonable people. Now, Rawls suggests that you could have, say, a kind of liberal socialism, that you could have some economically left-wing policies under this set of liberal institutions. But the key thing is that the institutions would have to be liberal. And liberal in the sense of um, respecting what Rawls calls the burdens of judgment, respecting that it's difficult for us to agree on a lot of moral and substantive questions, and therefore those questions can't be made public business. So for that reason, a lot of questions for Rawls are put outside the bounds of what he calls public reason, the set of things that we can talk about politically, where there's enough agreement among us to be able to talk about these things from within a shared political discourse. So this Rawlsian explanation depends a lot on this concept of the reasonable. It's got to be the case that reasonable people come together on this consensus. And that means, you know, that this conception of reasonable has got to be demanding enough that it produces a set of constitutional essentials, a basic structure. But it's got to be open enough that it can include enough people that we can really say that there's a consensus. And so there are two ways to read the reasonable to cause problems for Rawls's theory. The first is to read the reasonable in a way where it's so broad that it's going to include too many different types of ideas about what the constitutional essentials or basic structures should be. 
if you make everybody reasonable, they're going, it's going to be too hard to get agreement on institutions. If you make too few people reasonable to try to get a very particular kind of institution, say a kind of institutions which produces a very thick and demanding conception of justice, that is going to come at a cost of making it impossible to get enough people together to form the consensus. So you see the hang-up here, this concept of the reasonable. It's very fungible. And Rawls gives us some detail on, on the concept of the reasonable, but not enough to really decisively litigate how open or how demanding it is. And Rawlsians, uh, the followers of Rawls, still argue a lot about the boundaries of the reasonable and what is included and what's not included. It's clear that Rawls wanted the concept of the reasonable to be very inclusive. He didn't want very many people to be classed as unreasonable. And if that's the case, then you're left with a basic structure, a set of constitutional essentials that looks like it has to be pretty thin. Earlier in Rawls's career, he made an argument for principles of distributive justice. He argued that uh, states ought to prioritize the worst off. That particular principle, what Rawls called the difference principle, it seems difficult to enact that principle while having a very broad conception of the reasonable and a very pluralistic overlapping consensus. And Rawls pretty much admits this and says that in cases where uh, you can't get enough agreement to enact the difference principle, then the difference principle just can't be enacted. And so for those who really liked the difference principle and really liked a lot of Rawls's earlier work, the work from the 70s in uh, the book called The Theory of Justice, uh, this move that Rawls makes in the 90s toward this overlapping consensus is frustrating. But I think you could kind of view Rawls's work as having kind of a 70s, really encapsulating 70s liberalism in a theory of justice with this focus on this um, difference principle and really encapsulating also 90s liberalism in his later book, Political Liberalism, with this focus on overlapping consensus and a very procedural agreement, very procedural agreement. When you turn to Bernard Williams, Williams has a beef with Rawls's project because Williams thinks that in trying to get stability for the right reasons, Rawls is not recognizing that there is often a lot more disagreement, even than Rawls's own theory acknowledges. And that the standards for what makes a state acceptable or unacceptable to people, changes a lot over time and isn't something that you can fix in a permanent way, in the way that Rawls sets out. And so Williams makes this distinction between internal and external conceptions of legitimacy. And external conception of legitimacy conceives of what makes a state legitimate as if standing outside. And goes, okay, well, I think that a good state, a legitimate state is a state that's just, and I think justice means these things, and I think that reasonable people will be able to agree on this, this, and that in any society, really. Now, if you're thinking in that way about it, whether a state is legitimate depends on whether it meets an external standard set out by a philosopher, an abstract standard that a theorist has come up with. 
For Williams, legitimacy is not an external concept. It's an internal concept. Legitimacy is about whether actual people in the territory, in the state itself, the actual citizens, whether they think that the state is acceptable or unacceptable, whether they're willing to tolerate it. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether the state lives up to abstract principles or moral conceptions of justice. Because those abstract principles and moral conceptions of justice may not be relevant or important to the people who actually live in the society. So Williams wants to analyze legitimacy from the point of view of the people living in societies because Williams is interested in this question of whether actual existing states will survive or won't survive, whether they'll be able to secure legitimacy or they won't. He's not interested in whether actual existing states live up to philosophical conceptions of the way states ought to be. And this has set up a big, sharp debate in political theory between, say, the political philosophers who are more interested in the Rawlsian project of imagining what would be the right kind of consensus, the right kind of state, and people who are political realists who are interested in how states work in practice and the survivability of their institutions. Right. So the focus for the political realists like Williams is more on order and what's necessary to maintain it in practice. The focus for political theorists like Rawls is more on justice and what a good state would be. So much so that theorists like Rawls conceptualize legitimacy in a way which treats it a lot like justice, treats it a lot like an external standard that states either live up to or they don't, regardless of how anybody feels about it internally. Right? So that's kind of some of the basics here. Now, what actually, how does it actually work for Williams? How does this internal standard actually work? Well, Williams has what he calls the basic legitimation demand, or BLD. And the basic legitimation demand says that a state is legitimate when it answers the first political question in an acceptable way. The first political question for Williams is this question about, are you protecting your citizens from what they have reason to fear in terms of suffering, slavery, death, torture, starvation, thirst, very, very basic things that anybody in any society would be very concerned about at any point in history? Right? That's the first political question. But the second part of the basic legi legitimation demand is acceptability. The first political question must be answered in an acceptable way. And that acceptability criterion is where the contingency comes into the theory. Because for Williams, it's not going to be enough to protect people from suffering and death. You're going to have to do it in a way that makes them identify with the state in some sense. And for Williams, there's this talk about uh, reasonable resentment, how people feel resentful when the state doesn't do what they'd like it to do, when they can't identify with the things the state is doing. That makes it harder for them to identify with the state itself. That makes them resent the state. And that makes them not want to cooperate with it or to look for opportunities to change its institutions or to change it in some way. So for Williams, it's not just going to be about safety. It's also going to be about making the state something that people identify with. And this is something which separates Williams from, say, Thomas Hobbes, 
Thomas Hobbes focuses very much on just survivability. If the state isn't threatening your life, it's legitimate for Hobbes. For Williams, it's got to be recognized that in practice, people seem to want more from states than just safety. But that the specific set of things people want in addition to safety is very contextual, that changes a lot over time, and therefore it's not something that you can lay down in a fixed way with an external standard that's that you come up with as a philosopher, operating out of one particular place, one particular setting. That All of that makes sense? Mm. Yeah. So then, of course, the question that comes out of this is, well, how do we know what what's acceptable? And I don't think we get a whole lot of help from Williams on this point. And my thesis is kind of come in on this question of acceptability and what makes the order acceptable. And I think there are a few different concepts that can help us answer that question. Uh, before we got on, Edmund suggested that this is the second political question. If the first is how do you prevent people from dying, the second is how do you get them to accept the solution to the order question? Because usually the answer to the order question is itself a very disturbing answer. The way to make sure that we don't all get killed is to set up this coercive state. Mm. And that itself is a, is a disturbing answer, an answer that a lot of people are not comfortable with. And so the question of how do we make the answer to the first question okay mm. is itself a kind of second question. And I like that thought that you had before we got on. Didn't want to lose it. Uh, yeah, so to answer the question, there seems to be a criteria of legitimacy, things that states need to do, and the set of things that states need to do changes depending on the expectations that citizens have for their states, right? So the citizens will expect from states that those states deliver on different baskets of things. And if the state doesn't deliver on those expectations, the citizens will be frustrated with the state and begin to resent it. Mm. Now, the state has some ability to shape the expectations that citizens have through its education system, through its socialization system, through its influence over the media and the public discourse. And in this way, the state can tell legitimation stories. It can tell these narratives about why it's acceptable, right? Now, those narratives are con in constructing the expectations play some role in constructing the criteria of the state's legitimacy, the acceptability criteria. But it's easy for the state to lose control over its criteria because if the state is telling stories that don't align with conditions, then there's going to be mismatch. And this can happen pretty easily for two reasons. One is that when things are changing rapidly, conditions often get out of control. If you have a society where change is very slow, where technological change is very slow, like, say, uh, the Middle Ages, it's going to be a lot easier to maintain legitimacy because you aren't going to be seeing rapid changes in conditions. And therefore, it's going to be pretty easy to socialize your subjects to expect what they're going to get. Mm. 
But in an industrial modern context, it's much easier for the expectations to go a bit haywire. If you think about the post-war era, when there was this rapid growth in living standards, wages, in household technology, during this period, you get all of these crazy ideas from people about what the future is going to be like. You get the Jetsons. You get all of these elaborate sci-fi projects. You get Star Trek. And what people are doing here is they're projecting the change that they've seen over the last 20 years out into the future and imagining elaborate improvements in the standard of living. And this imagination begins to make it create a progress demand on the state. There's an expectation that gets created that the state will continue to provide material progress, continue to provide some kind of living standard improvement. Now, it's easy for the state to not be able to meet that standard because it's easy for there to be something which disrupts the improvement in living standards, like, say, the stagflation crisis of the 70s or coronavirus or the economic shock in 2008. It's easy for something to come along that the state doesn't anticipate, which disrupts its ability to provide an improvement in living standards. And so the state doesn't want legitimation criteria that is to do with improving people's conditions, because that criteria is easy to fail to meet, mm. because it's tied to the real world in a, in a fundamental sense. So the state is going to prefer to construct criteria and prefer to tell stories that are about stuff that it can more easily control. Like, for instance, whether you get to have a say, whether you get to have input into the political process. Mm. So the state prefers to tell you that you uh, should recognize the state as legitimate because you have a vote because you have free speech, because you get to participate in discussions, because you can run for office, because you have opportunity, right? These things don't make the state responsible for guaranteeing you an outcome, for guaranteeing you a distribution, for guaranteeing you a concrete rise in your living standard. These things are much more amorphous, right? If you think about the terms in, in the industrial modern era that states tend to use in their legitimation stories. They're quite fungible terms, terms like representation, liberty, equality. Now, that word equality, you could take that to mean distributive equality, equality of an output. But for the most part, the state tries to push us to understand equality in an input sense, that you get a vote, mm. right? That you have political equality input equality. And when the French Revolution was happening, this was the central question about equality. Is it a political input standard that isn't very difficult to meet? Or is it a very thick, very demanding Jacobin type standard where there's got to be redistribution of stuff? Mm. The state tries to push us toward the input understanding, and it's generally successful in doing that. Democracy has generally been pretty successful in getting us to buy that the system is legitimate because, say, the suffrage has been expanded to include everybody. Mm. Or because we have, say, some kind of reasonable set of laws surrounding uh, political money in a lot of European countries. 
or some reasonable set of rules surrounding uh, voter participation or the electoral system, mm. right? And so when we have a political crisis, the state will try to make it into something that can be addressed with a procedural reform, right? In 68, you know, we changed the rules of the primary, primaries in the United States so that primary elections determined who would run for offices instead of backroom backroom deals in smoke-filled rooms, mm. right? We made this change to make the system feel more procedurally inclusive. Mm. Ostensibly, people think when this happens that there's a connection often between the input and the output, but oftentimes the change in the input doesn't end up giving you a change in the output. And so I think that oftentimes states will try to construct an input story and that input story will buy the state some time. But eventually, when it becomes clear that the change in the input structure isn't going to deliver a change in output, resentment builds up again and the state must make some kind of new change. So one of the things that we've seen in the era of democracy is continuing procedural input changes to buy more legitimacy for states. Mm. So continued expansions of the suffrage, continued efforts at democratization, making stuff more direct wherever possible. And because we've kind of run out of ways to do this with the suffrage, because we have at this point expanded the suffrage very, very widely, the emphasis now is on the influence of political money. It's on uh, voter suppression. It's on getting more direct mechanisms in, like, say, citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies. These are all efforts to demand some kind of procedural democratization. And all of these efforts would buy a level of legitimacy for the state because they would give you hope that in the process you might be able to win. And if in the process you might be able to win if you keep trying, if you have some hope that the process might eventually enable you to win, then that will give you some reason to accept the state. And this gets back to this idea of uh, reasonable resentment that comes out of Williams. Uh, how much resentment do you have? And oftentimes, legitimacy is treated as an on or off thing. Either you have it or you don't. Either you are, and this comes back to what we were saying about crisis, either you're in the crisis or you're not in the crisis, Right. So oftentimes, legitimacy is treated as, as a zero to 60 thing. But there are levels. You can imagine a utopian society where you identify with everything the state does. You can imagine a society where you don't identify with particular policies or with the outcomes of particular elections. But you do think that the state is making those decisions through an acceptable institutional process. Then there's a level above that where you're committed to democracy, but you don't like our institutions. You think our democratic institutions are unfair, they're rigged, right? That's what I call level three, okay? The fourth level, of course, is rejecting democracy and wanting a whole different regime type. Very often, we act with legitimacy like stage two and stage four are the only two stages, right? But stage three exists, and stage three is very important. It's very often the case that we still support democracy, but we don't like the way democratic institutions work. And that sets up a relatively straightforward mechanism by which the state 
can restore a level of legitimacy by making procedural institutional concessions that look superficially important, but are meaningless in the long term for changing output. And I think in general, that's been the history of democracy. The history of democracy is making these institutional procedural concessions that don't have an overwhelming influence on material distributive stuff. Because those material distributive legitimation standards are just so much harder for states to meet, they really don't want to be bound by them. And one of the things that makes a state like, say, China look vulnerable to a lot of political theorists is how much China's legitimation criteria rests on living standard rise. Mm. It's very, very output. And because it's difficult to sustain steady improvements in living standards over very long periods of time, you might be able to do it for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years but surely not forever. A lot of political theorists are skeptical about the Chinese model's ability to secure its legitimacy in the long term. Hmm. It doesn't seem to have enough other legitimation stories alongside the living standard story to shift over to or emphasize. Now, this isn't to say that the Chinese state doesn't try to tell other legitimation stories. It definitely does. But those stories don't seem to have nearly as much purchase or as much influence. Hmm. States will tell all the legitimation stories that are available to them, in part because states are never totally sure what their own criteria is. There are so many different terms that a state can use to legitimate itself, and those terms can be understood in so many different ways. It's very hard for a state to know what precisely its criteria is. So it will tell all the stories that are available to it. It will tell a story about how it's meritocratic. It will tell a story about how it's representative. It will tell a story about how it secures freedom. It will tell a story about how it treats you as an equal. Hmm. It will tell as many stories as it can. One of the other things that I think is interesting is the extent to which because states know that most of their critics are Democrats and support democracy as a regime type, states don't worry very much about regime collapse. Democratic states, like the United States or the United Kingdom, don't worry very much about regime collapse. Mm. And because of this, they can play institutional games and attempt to delegitimate other parts of the state. Mm. So, for instance, it's become increasingly common for, say, the president and the Congress to attack each other's legitimacy as institutions. Mm where the president says we need to declare a state of emergency because Congress won't pay for this wall and they're obstructing a serious need that we have. When the president is doing that, it's often positioned as an attack on democracy. But what the president is saying is that he is speaking for the, demo the demos and the Congress is not. Hmm. His argument is not that we should get rid of democracy. His argument is that Congress has become a sclerotic institution that is getting in the way of the proper functioning of democracy and that its role should be reduced. Mm. He's not saying there shouldn't be elections for the presidency anymore. Mm. Right. 
And in a similar vein, if you look at various different movements around the country, a lot of them are attacking the legitimacy of some of our institutions, but not for the purposes of destroying democracy, but for the purposes of modifying it in some way. Right. A lot of people on the left now want to get rid of the Supreme Court or get rid of the Senate or get rid of the Electoral College. Those are not proposals to get rid of democracy. They're proposals to change it, to do something about, say, the Citizens United decision. Mm. Comprehensive campaign finance law. Or in the British case, to say, change the electoral system from first past the post to proportional representation or alternative vote. Or to go out of the European Union. These are institutional questions. Mm. Right? But they're not questions about democracy Democracy as a regime type. Democracy as a regime type, there's still a consensus around that. And so in this way, we have an overlapping consensus around democracy, but we don't have an overlapping consensus around the constitutional essentials or the basic structure. We don't have a consensus on what institutions are necessary for democracy to operate properly. Mm. Does that make sense, Edmund? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about, as you were saying, about the kinds of balancing acts that states need to do to secure legitimacy. Because it seems that states can't focus just on the, uh, the input side, the side that Rawls was into in the, in, in the 90s with political liberalism, um, all the the output side, the side which Rawls uh, flirted with in theory of justice in the seventies, it seems that states can never really go fully one way or the other. They can never really just focus on uh, results. They can never just focus on recognition. They have to, in some way, even though the balance can be skewed uh, quite. Quite steeply, one way or the other, states still have to at least try to secure some balance um, between results and recognition and help uh, to tie them together. This is an intuition that came out of, uh, or partly came out of, uh, with respect to liberal democracy, Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History, where he argues that what liberal democracy does is it, in some sense, allows results and recognition to come uh, together. And then David Runciman in his book, How Democracy Ends, says that results and recognition are now coming apart. And that one of the roots of the current legitimation crisis is that liberal democracy is struggling to help uh, to align these two things, um, to align desire with recognition, to align inputs with Outputs, and so it often veers one way or the other, uh, often in quite an extreme way. Uh, just, for instance, as you say, talking about abolishing certain institutions rather than thinking about material distributive questions. States are swinging so far towards the extreme of uh, input legitimacy that talking about class distributional issues that are more to do with results. Is almost uh, 
it's almost alien to states today to try to cultivate that language. Um, though they do still sometimes try to cultivate it when there are good economic times. States talk about it when the Dow Jones is doing well, Trump talks about it. Uh, but states do at the same time seem to be in some sense failing to secure a balance. You've got on the one hand China, which is ironically perhaps the closest example to Fukuyama's The End of History, because in The End of History, the problem with securing the balance between desire and recognition is that liberal democracy is very desire-oriented. It's based on a capitalist system which Fukuyama acknowledges eats away at community, eats away at collectivity, and really harms this uh, desire for recognition by pitting people against each other in market competition. Um, and the risk of having a society which is very desire-oriented but without a strong recognition bit of the legitimation story perhaps is, uh, as you were suggesting, Benjamin, um, China in its focusing on legitimating itself in terms of citizens getting what they want materially, uh, getting richer, even though there is no coherent legitimation story that can give them uh, a sense of mutual recognition, uh, they can still get the desire bit. And then having the desire is enough to secure just enough recognition for the whole, the whole system to get by. And then on the other hand, you've got the Western liberal democracies, which are increasingly very input-oriented. Um, and it, in a way, we're, we haven't really escaped Fukuyama's The End of History. We're just uh, tilting the balance one way to the other from, the, from being very desire-based legitimation stories um, in post-war era to today very uh, recognition-oriented legitimation stories. And China may well tilt this way if its economic growth starts to stagnate, as it has been stagnating in Western liberal democracies. Perhaps it will, I guess, tilt in the same way. Perhaps it'll pivot from output legitimacy to input legitimacy, from results to recognition. Um, but either way, it seems unlikely that it's going to settle, or any state is going to settle, around a balance, an alignment between results and recognition. Um, and I guess one interesting question is why that's the case, why it's the case that liberal democracy, contrary to uh, Fukuyama's initial intuition that liberal democracy is uniquely able to bring results and recognition together, it seems that even when liberal democracy brings these two things together, it so often just veers towards an extreme. And uh, far from being a moderate form of government, liberal democracy seems to legitimate itself. Um, or I, I should expand that to uh, not just liberal democracy, but uh, generally capitalist legitimation stories from China to, uh, to democratic capitalism. Uh, there seems to be this tendency within uh, capitalist legitimation stories or, or more broadly liberal legitimation stories if we're just talking about liberalism as that which legitimates capitalism. But there seems to be this tendency within 
modern or capitalist or liberal legitimation stories to often uh, veer towards one side or the other. Um, and it's quite difficult, it seems, for states to have both, to balance both. Um, states can be stable, they can try to just about satisfy both, but it's, of course, ideal for a state to balance these two considerations, to not veer towards one extreme or the other. And that seems... Ba- yeah. I, I think part of the trouble is that it doesn't look to states like a balance is what's optimal. Yeah. To the state, it looks like getting people on input is what's optimal because input demands are easy to meet with institutional fixes. Mm. Whereas output demands, it's much easier to fail them in a condition sense. Yeah. And that's why China, despite the fact that China seems to be doing quite well now, political theorists still think that even though the United States, which seems to be doing quite poorly now, uh, they, they tend to think that the United States is more likely to survive institutionally mm. than China because the American legitimation standards are more input oriented and the Chinese are more output. Yeah. The thing is that if you swing too far in the input direction, then there tends to be a neglect for the output. And you could get away with that in a situation like the Middle Ages, where there's very slow change. You can have legitimation stories that are very much about recognizing peasants as peasants and knights as knights and barons as barons and treating them in a way which accords with their status. Yeah. Uh, or building a society that is framed around God in the right kind of way where everyone is treated uh, as they would be under heaven insofar as temporal natural law reflects, uh, temporal law reflects natural yeah. law. Uh, it's harder when there's capitalism because capitalism means rapid change in conditions. And rapid change in conditions means that your position in the social hierarchy changes fast. Your resources change fast. Everything is precarious. Mm. Everything is vulnerable to shifts. And that makes it more difficult to be satisfied with just having a say in decisions. You need some security against the precarity. And mm. the precarity is, you know, it's not quite iron because it's, you know, it's not quite about survival because you are probably not going to die as a result of losing your job. Probably. But it is something that you have to be worried about or afraid of. Mm. And so when there's a focus on input and on recognition, we tend to subject people to living standards disruptions that they can't tolerate indefinitely the, the level of disruption. And that tends to produce a reaction. So I think that states have a good reason to not want their standards to be all about output, because when it is, they're vulnerable to their inability to manage the economy. Uh, but conversely, when states try to avoid that problem by running into input, they neglect output to the point at which it reasserts and there's a blowback. Mm. And I think a lot of this stems from being under industrial capitalism, being in this condition of rapid change, mm. where precarity is such a fact of life that ignoring the output, ignoring the way that these changes are affecting people's lives is not a very stable 
equilibrium. It would be more stable for states to combine the two together, but in practice, they don't want to rely very much at all on output because they have so little control, in yeah. part because in this globalized world that we're living in, states have less influence over their domestic economic situation yeah. than they used to in the post-war era when those output-related demands were a much bigger part of the legitimation narrative. And because they have less control over economic results, they don't want to depend on that for legitimacy. Uh, and I, before we got on, you reminded uh, me of Plato's myth of the metals and the different metals which correspond to different goals. Uh, and in talking about outputs and recognition, we seem to be kind of talking about, as you said, bronze and silver mm. in Plato's myth of the metals. And of course, Plato has a cycle of regimes in which you move from a regime dominated by one thing to a regime dominated by another thing. And if you notice in the cycle of regimes, the democracy, the silver dominated state, which is all about recognition and status, it decays into a state which is focused around resources and output because it's not able to remain input oriented indefinitely. Mm. It decays into a state which is interested in more physical desires, physical comforts. And then, of course, once you enter a world where the state is speaking in terms of physical desires and comforts, for Plato, that just gets exaggerated and exaggerated. Once you begin to focus on the bronze, the bronze just becomes more and more dominant, and it becomes harder and harder to articulate other things. Mm. And so I think kind of one of the struggles that democratic states are under is that industrialization and capitalism lead to an increase in the importance of the bronze, of the desires and, and uh, the outputs. But if that becomes the basis for legitimacy, they will become very vulnerable to economic shocks, which in an increasingly globalized world, they can't avoid. And so they have got to try to reshape the legitimation criteria to make them about input. And they have to continuously do this because as time goes on, there will be a drift in the direction of output unless there is constant course correction, constant resocialization, constant management of the discourse in the direction of input. The remarkable thing is how good de democratic states have been over the last several decades at shepherding us toward input discussions, toward discussions of process and institutions. Mm. They've been very effective at it, despite the fact that the source of resentment in a lot of ordinary people's lives is often their precarity and their fear of what will happen next in a world that is unpredictable. Mm. I wonder how long that can be sustained. Yeah. It seems to me like that has a, a shelf life mm. that's only so long. Yeah, yeah. Is China's condition of focusing on output for legitimacy something that is a possibility for embedded liberal democracies to pivot to? Or is that something that is, as it were, part of um, 
an earlier stage of economic development that you can do when you're really quickly economically developing um, up the steep slope that China's on, uh, catching up, as it were, with uh, the GDP per capita levels of uh, Western democracies. But it's not something that can be done once economic growth starts stagnating? Yeah, once you have more disruption to the living standard rise, mm. it becomes much harder to construct legitimation stories around that. Yeah. And so the effort to try to get us to talk more about the economy has tended to also come alongside critical movements that want to change distributive stuff in major ways. Yeah. Like, say, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And the way that the state pushes back against those economic narratives is by instead emphasizing procedural recognition narratives, which shepherd you back toward inputs. Mm. And so for that reason, a lot of the criticism which Bernie came under when he ran was that he wasn't sufficiently concerned with recognition. Mm. If you think about Hayek and Hayek's argument about, against planning, economic planning from the 40s, it's mainly an argument about how it's difficult for a plan to be satisfying. And therefore, once you start planning, you will eventually corrode the legitimacy of the state to the point at which you get Caesarism. Mm. That you will eventually produce so many disappointed expectations that people will be dissatisfied with the system mm. and chuck it out in favor of some kind of authoritarianism. Yeah. Yeah. But conversely, if you do what Hayek recommends and construct an impersonal rule of law procedural system under conditions where there's capitalism and rapid economic and industrial change, I, I, there's, it, it just seems that that legitimation story can't do all the work. Mm -hmm. The recognition story cannot fully substitute for an output story when you have a society where conditions are changing rapidly and therefore people are constantly afraid of what's going to happen to them. Mm. Under precarity, a recognition story is not enough. Yes. But if you go to the output story, then you have to do a lot more demanding things. And that puts a lot of stress on the state. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm also inclined to think that this kind of helps us think about the concept of totalitarianism, right? You know, what's bad about totalitarianism? Well, often it's pitched as the state having influence over how we think. Yeah. But all states tell legitimation stories. All states try to construct our expectations so that we'll want things that states are going to give us. All, you know, our states have conditioned us to like things like liberty and equality and representation, in part because it wants to give us those things on certain understandings of those terms and thereby secure legitimacy. Yeah. What makes totalitarianism bad is not that the state tells legitimation stories and makes stuff up and lies and plays games with language. All states do that. What makes totalitarianism bad is that totalitarian states try to operate from very, very undemanding standards. Yeah. 
They try to construct expectations that are extremely low, much lower than are necessary to sustain the state so that they don't have to do anything really at all for you. Mm. And so, for instance, in, in North Korea, the output expectation is so low that the population views famines as a normal part of life, that the United States inflicts famines on North Korea and therefore they're just going to happen. And so the North Korean state isn't really delegitimated even by famines yeah, because the expectation is so low. And that's the thing that freaks us out about North Korea. The idea that your expectations could be so low that a circumstance like that would be acceptable. Yeah. And a lot of totalitarian dystopias, the thing that is creepy about them is the fact that the expectations are so low and we are imagining, what if we had expectations that were that low? Mm. What if the people around us had expectations that were that low? And if that were the case, if the state could really sustainably lock us into expectations that are that low, it could have an order that would not be subject to insurrection, rebellion, revolt. Mm. And it could survive and last for a very long time without doing very much at all. Mm. I think that's what's creepy about totalitarianism. It's not just the storytelling, because everybody tells stories. All states come up with reasons why you should accept the order, why you should find the answer to the first political question acceptable. All states do that. And then conversely, going the other direction, libertarians and anarchists take the terms that the state has given them and exaggerate them and make them incredibly demanding. Yeah to the point where no order could possibly live up to those terms. The libertarian notion of what it means to be free um, is so outrageous that no political order, nothing which would be able to answer the first political question would also fulfill their acceptability criteria. The same goes for anarchists with uh, extremely elaborate conceptions of equality. If you want a level of equality where you have a kind of radical horizontalism that's not compatible with answering the first political question and protecting you against the basic fears. Hmm. So I think that the issue with libertarianism and anarchism of both the left and the right varieties is that they take the terms and make them so demanding in different ways, different terms in different ways, generally right right-wing versions of this focus on liberty and left-wing versions focus on equality. But they take the terms and exaggerate them to the point where they're unmeetable. And therefore, the state will necessarily disappoint the expectation. And therefore, the state will necessarily leave you feeling resentful. Mm. And so the goal of those movements is to raise your expectations to extraordinarily high levels so that you can't possibly view the order as legitimate. Mm. Because the goal of anarchist and, and libertarian movements is to, is to annihilate the state and replace it with something that's radically different. Mm. So the way they do that is by taking the terms that the state uses in its legitimation narratives and, and making them incredibly, incredibly demanding. And I think that's the opposite mistake from the totalitarian problem of lowering the demands to the point where they are automatically met. Mm. To have a, a good kind of politics, you need demands which force the order to give you more than just safety, but which are within the realm of possibility so that you can actually push the order to do those things without the order collapsing and giving you 
no answer to the first political question. Mm. And in general, we have struggled politically to find that golden mean, I think. Mm. We, we have a lot of people who are only focused on the safety side. We're only focused on preserving the institutions that we have. And we also have a lot of people who have messed with what liberty and equality mean to the point where these are kind of fantastical concepts. Yeah, yeah. But we don't want to overreact in either direction. We don't want to tell people that they shouldn't make demands because that would be totalitarian. Nor do we want to tell people that they're free to make demands regardless of how elaborate those might be, because that threatens people's survival and the ability of us to have society. Yeah. But in practice, it's been very, very difficult to get any kind of intermediary approach. And it seems to be getting more difficult as time goes on. It seems like the movements that interpret the terms in unrealistic ways have become more influential. And I think part of this is because we are so far removed from a period when the survival of the order was called into question, that the potential cost of thinking about the terms in this kind of fanciful French revolutionary kind of way, or hardcore right-wing libertarian kind of way, um, those consequences are not very visceral or, or obvious to people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I guess it sounds like we've identified so far, I think, about three golden means at least. We we one golden mean Three golden yeah. means. I mean I mean the two two the first two might be aspects of the same thing, but uh, I I guess the first being that There's a problem with um, having uh, overly high expectations or overly low expectations relative to current conditions. And it's worth having a golden mean between those extremes of overly low expectations and overly high expectations of totalitarian expectations and libertarian anarchist expectations, as it were. And then the second golden mean, which is, uh, I think, maps on quite neatly onto the first, is order maintenance and order improvement, as you put it, Benjamin, that this Weberian uh, balance between conviction and responsibility we mentioned at the end of the last episode. Um, and of course, it, it's, the, it, it's those people who hold the ethic of uh, responsibility uh, most highly who are least concerned with the uh, totalitarian expectations because, after all, they maintain the state. But uh, the problem with those is that they don't really align with uh, our convictions on what's good for people, what, what, say, freedom means. And so that's where that having higher expectations can be a good thing from a conviction perspective, but having overly high expectations is problematic from a responsibility perspective. And so this uh, Weber's balance between conviction and responsibility um, can also given us, give us this, this other golden mean of this balance between overly high and overly low 
expectations. Uh, those are the two of the golden means I think we might have identified here. Um, perhaps they're aspects of the same thing. And the third golden mean, I think, might be that it's worth having uh, some kind of balance between the input and the output sides of legitimacy between results and recognition. That when you lean too hard into the results side, then that jeopardises the legitimation story by making it all contingent on variable economic conditions. And when you lean, and also the other problem with that is that uh, you end up with uh, Nietzsche's last men. You end up with uh, people at the end of history who, in in Fukuyama's version of this story, uh, are very oriented towards desire, very oriented towards money acquisition, but don't have the kind of uh, sense of honour that would otherwise maintain legitimacy. And this, I think, is at least unstable on some level, um, apart from anything else, as Fukuyama um, notes at the end of his 1989 article, The End of History, that what might make history start again is people being bored with just having results, people being bored with just pursuing money. Uh, what if they want other stuff too? What if they want glory and honour? And that might be, for Fukuyama, uh, that which starts history again. So I guess that that's the problem with focusing on on outputs alone. And then the problem with focusing on inputs is that people still haven't lost the need to have the results side. They haven't lost the need to have the desire side. It's just that the state isn't paying attention to it anymore. So I guess the problem, as you know, on your point on precarity, Benjamin, that when a state uh, is just focusing on input legitimacy. Uh, the amount of precarity in the economic system we have means that people will end up saying that these dramatic changes in their conditions uh, don't reflect the expectations they had uh, about desire. Uh, but also, if people's conditions are changing all the time, then it's difficult for a state to maintain uh, the recognition side to maintain the input side too, because people might start saying uh, the argument Martin Giddens makes in his book uh, uh, on how economic inequality translates into political inequality um, and how called affluence and influence, how it's the affluence of the rich that buys them influence. And surely that's a problem for input legitimacy, because then all of a sudden, in a, a rigidly class-divided system where the rich have an awful lot more political power than the poor, because they spend it on uh, not only campaign spending, but also private media ownership and all sorts of other ways of manipulating the political process. Uh, you know, that then jeopardises the input the, the legitimacy. And so I think the risk of leaning too far into output legitimacy and leaning too far into input legitimacy is that at the end of the day, uh, apart from anything else, humans aren't built one way or the other. Humans aren't built to just have results or just have recognition. 
it is perhaps the human condition to pursue both and that leaning too far into one um, puts all your apples in one basket, but it also uh, kind of neglects the basic fact of human nature, which at the end of the day will at some point come back to bite the purveyors of such one-sided legitimation stories. Yeah, I think I think that's about right. And I think that those different golden means connect to each other insofar as it is easier for those output desire bronze demands to become too much for states to handle mm. than it is for the input. And it's easy for the input to produce a kind of totalitarian ideology which doesn't meet the more fundamental needs mm. and doesn't address the precarity and doesn't address the instability and leaves people without health care and leaves people without access to affordable education and mm. and all these other things. Uh, insofar as the contemporary United States is totalitarian, it's because it is so much about input and not about output. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I think part of what attracts the people who are attracted to China, uh, to China, is that focus on output. Yeah. As unstable and fraught as that's likely to be for China in the decades to come. Yeah. We are living in societies that constantly push down our output expectations and constantly redirect our output expectations toward input. Yeah. And for that reason, uh, any concern for output can be attractive mm. to people who are feeling that precarity and looking for some understanding that that matters. Yeah. So the opposite of totalitarianism isn't anarchism, it's moderation. It's only by moderating, uh, having some kind of golden mean between the extremes of ridiculously low expectations, ridiculously high expectations, that you can actually avoid the totalitarian risk. It's when you start veering yes. to it. Well, and this is why de Tocqueville talks about this oscillation between extremes of equality and extremes of despotism. Yeah. Because if you have this elaborate anarchist conception of equality or liberty or representation or whatever it might be, you will destroy your state and then you'll end up plunged back into the despotism. So, and this is why for, for Plato, if you go all the way down the cycle of regimes, you end up in tyranny. Because if you start catering to these elaborate desires that are unmoored from reality, you end up in the tyranny because you destroy the order and then the order is reconstructed anew. And when orders are reconstructed from anew, it is typically in a quite militarized and heavy-handed way. Yeah, yeah. And that's why totalitarianism and tyranny are, go hand in hand with libertarianism and anarchism. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, because in the cycle of regimes, Plato describes democracy as the most extreme form of the desire for equality, and then tyranny is the most extreme form of inequality, like, you know, extreme freedom and extreme unfreedom. Of course, that doesn't really map onto our very unequal societies, but I guess on the input side of things, because you see this current 
climate of people demanding various forms of uh, liberty that go beyond what liberalism is capable of providing, stuff like anarchism and uh, libertarianism, autonomism, that we are in some sense living in that platonic world of uh, a world with oligarchs, but a world where the demos is still looking for freedom. It's not possible to get extreme freedom of the kind described by these stories, but the yearning for that freedom, the yearning for having something that this system just can't provide, and it's not clear whether human nature can provide the kind of radical freedom described by libertarian and anarchist stories. But that doesn't stop people yearning towards it. And I guess ultimately by yearning towards something that we can't have, we'll end up having uh, very little of what we wanted in the first place. And we'll have made the perfect, the enemy of the good. Yeah, I, Pulling all the way toward the individual leads you into the worst kind of totality. Yeah. Yeah. And in this way, by connecting to Tocqueville to to Plato, we've rendered to Tocqueville a footnote to Plato. Sorry to Tocqueville. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but well, that's a fourth. But goal. yes, it's it's yeah. neat that it's a similar point. Yeah, and it's I mean, when you just noted that uh, point about individual and collective, we got onto the the fourth golden mean here, which is um, that ancient idea of the collective and the individual being in some sense one, that if you, just, if you just try to focus on the collective as something apart from the individuals, as something which uh, is separate from the individuals, as perhaps is the case in modern collectivist stories, which often uh, focus on serving the nation as something that is separate from the individual. Um, you know, or, or if you look at the modern, very individualist stories of the individual being primary and separate from the collectivity, what, what both of these modern forms of individualism and collectivism, or individualism and this kind of uh, groupism masquerading as collectivism, what both of them fail to notice is that basically politics is about the individual and the collective. It's about both, because on some level, politics is about realising that to be fully satisfied as an individual is to live a collective life. And the fulfilment of collective life is something that has to go through individuals. At this ancient intuition of individual and collective being one, and that both matter... <laughs> Uh, is perhaps another golden mean that the moderns still try to have. Like Benjamin Constant is very... Hegel. Hegel also tries to have the two together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they... But I think part of the trouble is that because the moderns think of them as a binary, yeah. as two separate things, or as uh, there being a public and private, yeah. they recognize that there's got to be some relation between these things that you need both of them, but because they're not seeing them as enmeshed yeah. to the degree that the ancients see them as enmeshed, the binary gets them into trouble. Yeah. 
but I, I guess is a, <laughs> a binary does not permit a mean because a binary is is two different things. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the issues with, with, say, dialectical thinking is that oftentimes if you have conceptualized the thesis and antithesis as two different things, uh, you aren't going to be able to synthesize them because the way you've begun has too many contradictions in it. Yeah. 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 Is there also a risk we want to guard against that, I guess what we're not saying and what the ancients weren't saying was that everything that is, that everything that is individual is collective and everything that's collective is individual. In other words, they weren't literally trying to say that there is nothing that can be said to separate them at all. They're not, for instance, going as far as Hobbes was going when he was claiming that he had overcome the separateness of individuals, that he created this Leviathan, which is a real unity of them all, not just an artificial unity, pretending that the state is this individual and that we literally sacrifice our minds and bodies in some way to the state. Uh, or at least in some strong metaphorical sense that has some real bearing on reality, that kind of uh, intense fusion or straightforward identification of the individual and the state, that's also perhaps an extreme which the ancients don't go towards. Plato notices that the state isn't a fully real unity, that the individual and the collective aren't separate, but they also aren't completely one either. Is there also that golden mean there, that with these modern separations, that this individual collective separation on the one hand and the politics morality separation on the other hand, that that is one extreme, but there's also the other extreme, which moderns sometimes also go to, which is saying that they literally are one, that each of these uh, pairs literally are one and that there's no distinction at all between Individual yeah, 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 because Plato, of course, recognized that the kind of tripartite soul, the tripartite city, the divisions within the thing are themselves a product of the unity being fundamentally imperfect in a material embodied realm. Yeah. Uh, that because of the subjectivity of persons, the unity could never be perfect and would always be unstable. Yeah. And... Therefore, there couldn't be a final answer to the question of how to structure the unity. It would need to be something that you would continually have to work on and continually have to attempt to not just perfect, but also to defend. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's something that the ancients understood, that any kind of unity in the physical world, because of the fact that we're in def different separate bodies, is a fragile thing. Every city, every polity is a fragile thing, and therefore you have to constantly protect the unity and try to strengthen it, rather than taking it for granted as a given. And so mm -hmm. in Hobbes's account, for Hobbes, if the sovereign isn't hurting you or threatening you or subjecting you to conditions which threaten you, you have to obey, and that's supposed to be enough. The realization for the ancients, of course, is that that won't be enough, and therefore you have to constantly manage these impulses these divisive impulses, these 
exaggerated feelings. And that that is a game that you will probably eventually lose, but all we can do is play it because that's the game that creates the space for us to be what we can be. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, I think that's a good place for us to end for today. I I think this one was pretty concise and action-packed by our standards. Yeah. Uh, So, we'll wrap up with this one. We're going to do a third in this series, which is going to combine legitimacy with crisis. So we're going to combine a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in this episode with a lot of stuff we've been talking about in the previous episode. We're going to give you a conception of legitimacy crisis. And we're going to talk about how you might get out of such a thing once you're in one, different paths out in a more detailed way than perhaps we've we've talked about here with, say, shifting a little bit stories in one direction or another, picking between one thing or another thing. We're going to try to give you a little bit more of a schematic of that in the third episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, you can follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash politicaltheory101. Thanks so much for listening and have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.